Merry Christmas, brothers and sisters, a week out, I know, but um, enjoying this season with you and enjoying this series that we're in um, on the attributes of God. And I, and I hope to make some Christmas connections, especially this week and next week, even as we look at the last two attributes, the attribute of wisdom, God's wisdom this morning, and then the attribute of God's truth, Lord willing, on Christmas morning. John read Ephesians 3 for us, and I want to direct your attention to just a couple of those verses. We're not going to be entirely in Ephesians 3 this morning. We're actually going to be in Genesis 3 and kind of tracing the story of God's wisdom as it unfolds in his salvation plan in the Bible. So we're going to, we're going to look at Genesis 3 in just a moment. But I want to draw your attention to Ephesians 3 with just two specific phrases here in verses 8 to 11. First of all, there's a phrase that Paul uses that he says he was, he was sent to preach to the, the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. That's, that's a marvelous statement. That, that Paul was sent to preach these unsearchable riches found in Jesus that was part of a plan that God had kept hidden. It was a mystery for ages hidden in God himself. And yet now he's disclosed it in Christ. And he says at the end of that passage in verse 11, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. So there's a connection to Christ being the wisdom of God here and the church being the means by which God has chosen to display his wisdom. So that's where we're kind of headed this morning. We're going to talk about that connection. How, how is Christ the wisdom of God, and then how is the church the display of that, of that wisdom? might be helpful on the front end to just define what we mean by, by God's wisdom here. Um, what's the difference between God's knowledge and God's wisdom? We, we know that God knows everything, that he knows the thoughts of our heart, and he knows our names, he knows the hairs on all of our head, the number of them. God's knowledge deals with the possession of all the facts about everyone and everything. It's, it's God's knowing of all things and everyone. He knows the end from the beginning. He never learns from history. He never hears any news. He remembers everything that's happened in the past. He knows everything that's happening at this very moment. He knows everything that will happen in the future. He knows all possibilities, all actualities, all events, all creatures and is perfectly acquainted with every single detail of every being in heaven and hell and on earth. That is God's knowledge. But God's wisdom is slightly different. Because while God's knowledge deals with God's possession of all facts and about everything and everyone, God's wisdom deals with the best use of that knowledge for the highest possible good. So God's wisdom then directs him to use his exhaustive and complete knowledge to achieve the very best possible outcome in any given situation. Because God is all-wise, he always uses his omniscience, that is, his knowledge of everything, for the greatest possible end. See, God's wisdom leads him to make the best decisions to reach the highest Good. It always moves him to take the best path in order to reach the best destination. God's wisdom is his choosing the best to reach the highest good, which is the display of his own great glory. Now, 
If that's God's wisdom, him choosing the best path to achieve the best possible end, what is that path and what is that end? Well, the Bible teaches us that the master pursuit of wisdom, the, 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 the overarching pursuit that God has, is the supreme exaltation of his great name, his great glory in the world that he has made. So what is this wise plan for the universe that he's using to accomplish that end? Well, God's entire plan, conceived from eternity, was to put his wisdom on display in human history with Christ at the very center of it. A Christian approach, a biblical approach, to a study of God's wisdom has to start and end with Jesus Christ. Because, this is what the New Testament tells us, Colossians 2, 2 and 3, God's mystery is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if we're going to talk about God's wisdom, we've got to talk about Christ. What about Romans 16, 25? The mystery that was kept secret for long ages, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says, God set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. So this is God's mysterious, wise plan to bring into human history his own son to display his great wisdom. Now, what does Christmas have to do with that? Well, Christmas is the decisive inbreaking of this wise plan into human history. Christmas is not small. It's not insignificant. It's the entrance into our world of the greatest plan in the universe, a plan that was formed in eternity, a plan by which God, as a trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit, would send the second person of the trinity into his own creation, a plan that would result in shaming the enemies of God, a plan that would save a great number of people for his own name, a plan that would display his infinite wisdom. One of the things we're going to see this morning is that God's wisdom often works counterintuitively to ours. What appears foolish or insignificant or even confusing to us is a wise execution of God's wise plan because God delights in using what the world perceives to be foolish to accomplish his eternal purpose. Think about it. When the New Testament talks about Christ being the wisdom of God, what does it highlight? It highlights his cross. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, and verse 30 of chapter 1, calls Christ the wisdom of God, and that wisdom is in connection to his work on the cross, which the world sees as foolishness. So here's where we're going this morning. We're going to look at the overarching story of the Bible in terms of God's wise plan and how it unfolds in Genesis chapter 3. So the Genesis chapter 3, early in the Bible, we're familiar with it, I trust many of us, most of us, is the story of the fall. It's the story of Satan tempting our first parents, Adam and Eve, into sin, to disobey God and bring the human race into sin and death and under God's judgment. But what we're going to see is that there are two rival agendas going on in Genesis chapter 3. There's God's eternal wise plan being worked out, and there's Satan's attempted foolish plan being worked out. And this is the way 
that God decreed and ordained for the display of His glory in Christ in the world. This is the way that God is choosing to display His wisdom. In Genesis 1, we see God's creation begin as He speaks heaven and earth into existence. He makes a bountiful and a beautiful world, and He makes man and woman in His own image to be like Him and to walk with Him and to rule over the new world that He has made. However, in Genesis 3, we're introduced to the villain, the one who comes to spoil God's wise plan and ours. And how does he do it? He does it by getting us to believe that his story is the wise story. His plan is the wise plan. So what we're going to do this morning is look at two things in Genesis 3 and then trace them out through the Bible. We're going to see Satan's foolish plan both his strategy and its result, and God's wise plan, both its strategy and its result. So first of all, Satan's foolish plan. If you're not in Genesis chapter 3, I invite you to turn with me there or find it on an app on your phone, but this is where we're going to be for a couple of minutes, looking at Satan's foolish plan, both its strategy and result, and God's wise plan, its strategy and its result. So first of all, let's look at Satan's foolish plan. First of all, his strategy. Three components to Satan's strategy here. First of all, let's read Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Satan's first strategy is to get us to doubt God's wise plan, to get us to doubt, to enter into doubt about God. Did, did, did God really say, did he, did he really say this? And with that question, Satan strategically plants the seed of doubt into Eve's mind that God's word is subject to human opinion. God has spoken And if he has, you get to evaluate it. You get to evaluate it. It's up for debate. You get to negotiate with interpretations here. We see that taking place. Did God really say? No, well, he did. Yeah, I mean, that's maybe the way you read it. But the way I read it, that's Satan's strategy, getting us to doubt what God has said. Secondly, his strategy is to distort God's plan. Look again at verse 1, the end. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Any tree? See, by forbidding eating from one tree, which is what God originally said, you may eat from all the trees in the garden, but this one tree you must not eat. See, Satan comes and distorts it. He turns God from a generous father who has forbidden one thing and to a stingy God who has forbidden everything. He distorts God's plan. Satan made it seem like God had prohibited all the trees. And in doing so, he portrayed God as mean. Why is he keeping so many good things from you, Eve? See, by twisting God's prohibition and sowing suspicion of God's character, Satan is distorting the way Eve is thinking about God. He's not kind. He's not good. He's stingy. He can't be trusted. So Satan gets us to doubt God's plan. He gets us 
He distorts God's plan. Thirdly, he gets us to deny God's plan. Look at verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. See, knowing that he's not getting very far with these initial opportunities of sowing doubt and trying to create distortion, he just flats out denies what God has said will happen. He says, even though God has said, if you eat of that tree, you'll die, you're not going to die. You know why you're not going to die? You're going to become like God. And that's why God has told you not to eat of that, because as soon as you eat of it, you become exactly like him. He's trying to keep you from becoming God. Now, what happens as a result? Well, they listen to Satan's story, Eve first and then her husband, lusting for the forbidden pleasure and longing for independence from God, and the result is a ruined humanity and a ruined world. We read in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Desire to be wise. Desire to be like God. You see how wisdom and being like God is the root sin here? The desire to know all that God knows. The desire to be all that God is. And it's that strategy that is successful in slaying our first parents and ultimately in him or in them being born in union with them, we too are born with these propensities to doubt God's word, to distort God's plan, to deny God's plan altogether. So what's the result? Well, first of all, we see that humanity is ruined. In what way? Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the first thing is they're ashamed. They're ashamed. They lost their innocence. They lost their purity. They felt awkward and uncomfortable with one another. And instead of the openness and the transparency that was marked by their pre-fall condition, there was hiding. Instead of oneness, there was division. They were ashamed. Secondly, they were afraid. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord, walk, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I was afraid because I was naked? What? You were naked before you sinned. You weren't afraid then. Well, that's because as a result of sin came not only shame but fear. They hid from God. God was now a terrible judge to them rather than a loving father. His voice was no longer music to their ears. It was terror to their hearts. They ran from him, not to him. Thirdly, they were alienated. Look at verse 11. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. See, the finger pointing and the blame shifting begins. 
and since shame and fear has come upon them, discord has come into their relationships with, between themselves, between God, and with others. Not only is humanity ruined, though, but creation is ruined as well. God places a curse, first of all, on animals. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat of it all the days of your life. God curses Eve, places a curse on her, bearing and raising children. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He shall rule over you. And to Adam he places a curse on his work and his environment. To Adam he said, because, verse 17, you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Humanity's ruined, creation is ruined. Every dead animal, every miscarriage, every loss, every boring or unrewarding job, every hospital bed, every surgery, every disease, every death, all result from the ruined world brought about by human sin. Instead of a life of bounty and beauty, in Genesis 1 and 2, there is now death and decay and disorder, all as a result of Satan's plan. He thinks he's won. He's done done it. He's undone it. He's undone God's wise plan by communicating and convincing Adam and Eve that they are wise, that they are God, that they should be the ones to execute this plan in the world under his sovereign initiative, lowercase s, Satan's sovereign initiative. So what's God's wise plan? Is there any hope of overcoming this ruin? God could have just given up, thrown in the towel. All right, Satan, you win. Good move. I'll start again. No. In the midst of this wreckage, God is already working out his wise plan. God promises to reverse, redeem, and rewrite this entire story as a part of his original story to begin with. Fulfill the story that Satan didn't even realize he was participating in. Satan is getting played as a pawn in God's great story, he thinks he's the central character who's just taken over God's great story. And little does he know what's to come. So let's look at God's wise plan then. First of all, in verses 14 and 15, we get a prequel, as it were, a pre-announcement of how this plan is going to be executed, how this strategy is going to take place. First of all, it's going to result in Satan being disgraced. Look again at verse 14. He says, because you've done this to the serpent, he says, cursed are you. And then he says, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Being on your belly in the dust is a picture of humiliation. You are going to be humiliated. The snake is going to be thrown down on the ground, eat dust all the days of its life, which is not only a picture of what a snake is and does, right? but a biblical picture of evil's ultimate defeat. Satan will be disgraced. Secondly, Satan is going to be detested. He is going to be hated. 
Whereas Adam and Eve capitulated to his request, there are going to be people who don't, who don't listen to him and don't follow his request. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity, that is strife, discord, alienation between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So he's picturing two offspring here. You've got the offspring of the devil, you've got the offspring of the woman, Eve. And he's saying there's going to be discord between your offspring, serpent, and her offspring. God is going to put enmity between humanity and snakes to picture the enmity he wants between humanity and the devil. There is a reason, there is a natural fear of snakes among humanity. And there are those crazy people that hang around with them all day long in Florida. I know, I know, I know. But generally speaking, there is a legitimate fear there. And that's a picture of what God is bringing about in a greater way between humanity and the devil. See, sin brought humanity into a friendly relationship with Satan. But God's going to break through this newly formed alliance with the devil and turn humanity's friendship with Satan into hostility. He's going to put such hostility between Satan and Adam and Eve, and by doing this, he's foretelling of a restoration that's going to come. Enmity between people and the devil between, means harmony between people and God. So Satan's going to be disgraced. Satan's going to be detested. Satan's going to be defeated. Look at the end, the bottom of verse 15, last part. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Who's the he here? Well, it's the seed of the woman. God promises a future seed, a future child, a future son, who's going to be descended from Eve, who would suffer a non-fatal, devil-inflicted wound on his body, but who would ultimately and fatally, through that wound crush the head of the serpent. Whatever temporary pain the devil would inflict on this promised one, the deliverer would ultimately triumph over the devil. So how will the head of the devil be crushed? How will the heel of the son be bruised? That, friends, is the story of the Bible. It's the Bible. From this verse, we can trace out, you will see, seed of woman, seed of the serpent, all throughout the Bible. We see God's strategic plan unfold here in promise form. He promises that Satan will be disgraced. He promises that Satan will be detested. He promises that Satan will be defeated. But how will that happen? Well, that's God's strategy. Let's look at God's result. We're going to see two ways, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, two ways in which God... God's wise plan overcomes Satan's foolish plan. First of all, Christ conquers Satan. Second of all, the church conquers Satan. And that is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Christ will come, and he will be bruised in his heel. That is, he will have a non-fatal, but at least fatal in terms of physical life, but not fatal in terms of spiritual life. He will die, he will rise again, and in that triumph over death, he will defeat the serpent. And all those who are in union with Christ defeat the serpent too. Because th those are the people that are put, that, that Jesus will put enmity between the devil and them.
So the first half of Genesis 15 is fulfilled in the church. The second half is fulfilled in Christ. So we're going to look at how that, how that wise plan happens. First of all, God's result first. God, Christ conquers Satan. Christ conquers Satan. Now back in Ephesians 3 that we read at the beginning of the sermon this morning, when Paul said that God displayed his wisdom through Christ by making known the mystery, who did he make the mystery known to? It says that he made the mystery known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's talking about demonic powers. Ephesians 6, 12 uses this very phrase, ruler, rulers and authorities, to talk about demonic powers. So when Christ came and Christ was born and lived and died, this was first and foremost to make an announcement to, to those who had resisted and opposed God's plan, namely Satan and his demons, and say, hey, you didn't win. You thought your plan was the one that was going to get fulfilled. But God's plan has been fulfilled. So why does God allow Satan to go on acting in the world after Genesis 3? Why does he let him continue? Why didn't he just snuff him out right there? He could have. Because he wanted Christ to conquer him. It's going to come in time, and it's going to come through the birth, the life, and the death of the Son of God. So let's trace that out. First of all, let's look at how Christ's birth defeated Satan. We read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We'll come back to that passage a little bit later. But we know that one of the reasons that Satan is permitted to continue living on is not because God can't eliminate him. As soon as Satan brought sin and misery into the world, God announced that his doom was sure. And at the end of history... The final elimination of the devil is sure. We read in Revelation 20, the devil was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil and his angels know this. Revelation 12.12 12 says that the devil knows that his time is short. Similarly, in Matthew 8.29, when Jesus comes on the scene and the demons cry out, Have you come to torment us before the time? They know their time is coming. They know their time is limited. And they know Jesus is going to end them. In other words, they know their utter defeat is appointed. What did they? Ex what they did not expect is the way it would come. They did. They were. Are you going to put us out of? You're here now. No, not yet. While Satan knew that God would one day defeat him, he did not know how God would do it. All Satan foresaw is that God's power would overthrow him one day. So here's where the wisdom of God shows itself most clearly. The hidden mystery for ages in God was vastly more glorious than Satan could ever see. God's plan was to save his people and defeat Satan in a way that would glorify his much manifold wisdom. Ephesians 3.10 And at the center of the display of this wisdom was the unforeseeable wonder of Christmas. John 1.14, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Satan didn't see that one coming. Satan never anticipated the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, taking upon himself a fully and true human nature? What? Only the God-man could reconcile God and man. And, and communion with God remains possible for us only because God became man. Satan did not see this coming. 
He did not see the birth coming. He should have, though. If he's paying attention to the Old Testament and the prophecies that God had gave along the way. Christ not only conquered Satan in his birth, secondly, Christ conquered Satan in his life. Remember Matthew 4? Right after Jesus' baptism, he's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by whom? The devil, Satan. And Satan tempts him in his hunger, command the stones to become bread. Satan tempts him to trust God, to rescue him. If Jesus throws himself off the temple, he tempts God. Jesus by offering all the kingdoms of the world if he will but exchange his worship of God for the worship of Satan. What, will, what was the devil trying to do? Essentially, he was seeking to do with Jesus what he did with Adam and Eve and what he does with, attempts to do with each one of us. Disorient, deceive, distort. It's the only cards he has. He's a liar. He's an accuser. It's all he's got. If he tells the truth, nobody follows him. But if he can get us to believe the lie, he's got us. So what did he do? He tried to disorient Jesus. He tried to disorient Jesus' perception of reality so he could distort and deceive Jesus into believing a false narrative about the universe. The devil tempts Jesus to see himself in a different story, one he implied would be better if Jesus took matters into his own hands. See, he's just like he's trying to get Adam and Eve, and he succeeded to get them to take matters into their own hands, so he's trying to get Jesus to take matters into his own hands. Look, just, just do what I tell you to do. Just Look, God has already said he's going he's gonna to command, command his angels concerning you. He's going to, he's gonna protect you, so throw yourself off that he'll catch you. Eat this. I know you're hungry. Eat it. He's tempting him with food. Pleasure of the belly. Although here's where we see our triumphant Savior. Because Jesus discerned the insidious temptations by remembering the real story he was walking in. He remembered that in order to undo the catastrophic result of Adam and Eve's sins by believing a perverted story, he was going to believe the real one. And he did it for us. He skillfully used the armor of God against the schemes of the devil. He lifted up the shield of faith and wielded the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Jesus was not ignorant of Satan's designs, and therefore he was not outwitted by them. He was not ignorant of the universal diabolical dimension of temptation, disorient, distort, deceive. And even in that desert place, after fasting for 40 days, this is way different from the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Surrounded by plenty. See, we fell in a paradise. Christ succeeded in a desert. He succeeded against Satan when he had nothing else to look at that pictured God's goodness. He was assaulted on every front, and he did it by the Spirit. Just because the Spirit loves us, the Son loves us, the Father loves us. And so Christ conquers the devil by his life. He resists his temptations in the desert, does not cave to his wishes. The devil departs from him, and the angels come to comfort him. So Christ conquers Satan in his birth, he conquers Satan in his life, and he fundamentally conquers Satan in his death. Jesus comes to his last hour 
the hour of his apparent defeat, finally, Satan says, I've arranged a scenario. Judas got him. Got into his heart. Got him. Got one of the disciples to betray him. Sell him. Concoct this whole narrative about his agenda to be some political ruler in Rome and this threat to the peace of the city. Got him convicted. This crazy jury that was not even a jury and get him to be condemned as a criminal when he did nothing wrong. We'll look at that more next week. But in the midst of all of this, Jesus says in John 31, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. How exactly did it happen? How how can that happen? How does Christ's death cast out Satan? Well, 1 John chapter 3, 1 to 10, we're told, as I said earlier, why Christmas happened. The reason the Son of God appeared, 1 John 3, 8, was to destroy the works of the devil. Well, how does he destroy the works of the devil? Well, we've seen it in part in his birth and in his life by undoing what our parents did, Adam and Eve. But two times in 1 John 3, we're told specifically what, we, what he means by the works of the devil there. The works of the devil is sin that the devil promotes. We see this in verse 8 of John, 1 John 3. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then John tells us in chapter 3, verse 5 of 1 John, we know that he appeared, that is Christ, to take away sins. In him there is no sin. So the sinlessness of Christ is affirmed. In him there is no sin. And the reason for his coming is affirmed, to take away sin. So how do we put all that together? So Christmas happened. The Son of God became a human being to take away sin, that is to destroy the works of the devil. Sin is the work of the devil. So Jesus was born in order to destroy the works of the devil, to take away our sin. In Christ's death, he took away the sins of the world as he paid the sin debt for all his people. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead. This is the wisdom of God, providing an innocent substitute to die in the place of all those who will trust in him in order to secure our eternal redemption from sin, death, hell, and Satan. The one thing Satan had in his hand, the one bullet in his gun, that he can legitimately and justly fire at God for, for, to take, for, our, for our sin is our guilt and unforgiven sin. We are guilty. We have sinned. We have violated God's law. That is the one bullet that Satan can justly wield our way. And yet that bullet was absorbed by God in Christ on the cross. And therefore becomes the means of God's great glory of our joyous salvation and Satan's own eternal damnation. Who but God can do this? Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says it beautifully. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Christ, himself, likewise partook of the same things, that is our flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, I want you to hang with me for this quote because I'm going to read a John Owen quote, and I read John Owen quotes with fear and trembling because John Owen is a thick and dense, difficult read. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, when you can plunge through the rock to get to the diamond, it's a great big diamond, but there's a lot of rock sometimes there. 
So, but the, it was just too good. I read it this week and I thought, even with all of his old language and difficult expressions, this is gold. Because John Owen is relating how the wisdom of God works in our salvation in the shaming of the devil. So I'm going to read it slowly and I'll, I'll share some phrases that may be a little bit uh, need explanation. So here's what Owen says about Christ's wisdom displayed here. This salvation was done in a way that Satan never thought of. Okay, easy enough. Thanks, Owen. For by the obedience and sufferings of the Son of God incarnate, there was full satisfaction made unto the justice of God for the sins of man. Christ died in our place for our sins. A reparation of his glory and an exaltation of the honor of his holiness. Outbalancing all the diminution, that is the downfall, the decay, the bringing down of it by the first fall of mankind. The charms of Satan were dissolved. All his chains loosed. His darkness that he had brought on the creation dispelled. His whole plot and design defeated. Whereon he saw himself and was exposed unto all the holy angels of heaven. In all the counsels, craft, and power he had boasted of to be nothing but a mass of darkness, malice, folly, impotency, and rage. This shame was one of the principal parts of Satan's eternal torments. But again, any other way he thought he had secured, he thought he had secured himself. It's plain to all what shame, confusion, and self-revenge the proud apostate was cast into upon God's holy, righteous disappointment of his design. To find that which Satan contrived for the destruction of the glory of God and the eternal ruin of mankind had resulted in a more glorious exaltation of the holy properties of the divine nature and an unspeakable augmentation of blessedness unto mankind itself is the highest aggravation of his eternal torments. This was a work every way becoming the infinite wisdom of God. Now what's he saying there? Let me just explain and I hope a simpler way, what, he, what he's talking about. Satan's goal in the agenda, his thought in that bringing down mankind was that there's, okay, I'm, I'm besmirching the glory of God. I'm taking the image of God and causing that image to rebel against him. And God's going to bring justice. And that's the way this is going to end. Because I heard what God said that he would do if they ate from that tree. That's all he thought. But God's plan was not only to display his justice, but to display his love, his mercy, his grace, his compassion, his holiness. That doesn't get displayed if there's only justice. And that's why Owen says this act of Satan resulted in a greater manifestation of God's glory than even he imagined. Because he thought, I'm just going to get God to judge these people. That's it. God's glory will be vindicated. He'll be just. That's it. And I've made an end of his plan with humanity. But God purposed that he would not just glorify his justice, which he would on Satan's head and on the head of all those in union with him, but also display his glorious compassion and grace and mercy and love through the Lord Jesus Christ to all of his people. So the crucifixion was not the defeat of God's plan. It was the destruction of Satan's plan. And in God's master designed, the cold-blooded murder of the Lord Jesus Christ was at the heart of the eternal purpose of God's wise plan. Brothers and sisters, I cannot but bow in worship to that. 
that God in his love permitted the cold-blooded murder of, Satan, of, the, of the Son of God at Satan's hands in order to accomplish his great eternal purpose. This vile, despicable act of the crucifixion, the greatest sin, the greatest evil that could ever have been committed was used by God according to his definite plan and foreknowledge, according to Acts 2, to accomplish salvation to the great glory of his name. While the work of Satan brings shame to God's people, the work of Christ ultimately brings shame to Satan and vindication to God's people. Satan is made a fool of. He attempted to make a fool of Adam and Eve. He's the one who's going to be naked and hiding in fear. Paul makes the shaming of, Satan, shaming of Satan explicit in Colossians 2, 13 and 15. God forgave all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to what? Open shame by triumphing over them in him. He took the bullet out of the gun. He took sin saying, you can't forgive them. They're sinners. Oh, yes, I can forgive them and still be just because I paid for it. And that's the logic of Colossians 2. Christ forgave by canceling that record of debt, nailing it to the cross, and thereby disarming and putting to open shame Satan and all of his demons by triumphing over them in the cross. So Christ conquers Satan in his birth, in his life, in his death. Secondly, and this will be our last point, the church conquers Satan. This is what Satan sees every day around the world. This is why he's so furious. The rulers and authorities are forced to behold to their shame the manifold wisdom of God being displayed where? According to Ephesians 3, through the church. And it makes them angry. How do we conquer Satan? Three ways. We have conquered Satan through union with Christ. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God, everyone who's born again, everyone who's a Christian, everyone who's in union with Christ by faith, does not keep on sinning. That is, they do not make a habitual, ongoing, unrepentant practice of sin. Doesn't mean they don't sin. We do sin. But we don't make a practice of sinning. We don't keep on sinning without repentance. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. See, we are protected by our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil can't lay a hold on us with our sin anymore because Christ has paid for them, and therefore he can't touch us. Well, wait, what does that mean? If he can't touch us, why does Peter say in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So can Satan touch us or can he not touch us? Well, keep in mind, 1 John 5, he's talking about touching us in regarding to our sin. He can't touch us there. Our sin's been paid for. Our sin's been atoned for. Our sin has been forgiven. We have conquered Satan through our union with Christ. But secondly, we've conquered Satan. We are conquering Satan through our union with Christ. We not just have, we are. Now, I want you to pay attention here because this is, this is a beautiful picture in 1 Peter we get. So 1 Peter 5 talks about 
Right, be aware, Satan's roaring. He's after you. He's seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Peter's referring to real sufferings of various kinds that Christians are experiencing throughout the world, and Satan is behind them, making every effort to use those sufferings to destroy our faith. His aim is causing the suffering to deceive us into believing God is against us and not for us. See, it's the same agenda. See what's going on? See, he doesn't love you. He sent this difficult trial into your life. Forsake him. But, what does Peter say in 1 Peter chapter 1? Now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Satan has one purpose, God has another. Satan has the purpose of destroying the faith of Christians through suffering. God has the purpose of refining, or refining the faith of Christians through suffering. God wins. The very sufferings that God permits Satan to send into our lives, book of Job, is the very suffering that God uses to refine us and make us more like him to his praise. That's the beautiful wisdom of God on display. Satan still thinks he's getting the upper hand by sending suffering into the lives of Christians. He's not. And this is why 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul can say this. To keep me from being conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. That is a fascinating verse. Satan's whole goal is to get us conceited. That was his goal in Genesis 3. Be wiser than God. Feed arrogance. Feed conceit. Feed pride. A messenger of Satan was given to me that I might not be conceited. This is God's wisdom. Here we have both the activity of God and the activity of Satan in the life of Paul. Satan wanted to destroy Paul's faith with pride. God wanted to keep Paul humble with humility, and he gave the instrument of his sanctifying work a messenger of Satan. That's amazing. While Satan's design is the destruction of Paul's faith, God's design is the strengthening of Paul's faith. God even uses what he intends for evil for good. As Peter says, the very sufferings that Satan uses to devour our faith, God uses to purify our faith. And in this sense, the evil one can't touch us. That's why we are conquering through our union with Christ. We have conquered. We are conquering. Finally, we will conquer. Romans 16, 20. One day, Satan will be crushed under our feet. It's not Christ's feet. It's the church's feet. Our life together, every Lord's Day as we gather, is a testimony of the coming defeat of Satan. We are announcing to principalities and powers and all of God's people down throughout the ages as they've gathered on the Lord's Day to reassert their confidence in Christ, to take the Lord's Supper together, to acknowledge that they belong to Jesus, to worship Christ alone. They are, they are speaking to principalities and powers in unseen places. You haven't won. You will not win. God is gathering for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and language. And they will stand before the throne and they will sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And you will be cast into the lake of fire. Your foolish plan was defeated. My wise plan was accomplished. I am glorified. My people are saved.
take that. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for the wise plan that you executed in Christ. Thank you for the ways that you juked the devil. Thank you for the ways that you continue to overthrow him. That you overthrow him, you overthrew him finally and decisively in Christ. And you are overthrowing him now every time your people are, are sanctified. They are kept from, your device, from, from Satan's devices. And they are finally saved in the last day. Every sinner that is saved causes heaven to rejoice and hell to groan. And so, Lord, would you save? Go on saving. Save those among us this morning who are still in captivity to Satan. And all it feels like is living for themselves. They don't feel captive to Satan, and he loves it that way. Lord, would you free them from the bondage of self, which is the bondage of Satan? And would you free us, free them into the glorious liberty of the sons of God? He whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. Would you make them free in Christ? And all those of us gathered here this morning whom the devil cannot touch because our sin has been atoned for and righteousness has been provided for us and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Lord, would you go on helping us to resist the devil by the strength that you supply, firm in our faith? Would you help us and equip us to see all that Satan is doing as serving your ultimate purposes in our lives? And may we trust you. May we not be deceived. May we not have the plan of God distorted in our thinking. May we see your wise plan and bow in humble worship, in grateful submission, in loving obedience to you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for the ways you've chosen to display your wisdom in saving us to an eternity of joy that we do not deserve. We are grateful to be your, your restored image, image bearers and those who look for, forward to glorification with you. Even so, even as you've come and we celebrate during this time your first coming, we pray that you would come again, Lord Jesus. Defeat the devil once and for all restore your creation, and bring us in to that liberty, that joy. Here, some drops of joy enter into us. There, we enter into the joy of our master. And we so look forward to that day. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together and respond in song.